Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Pete's Ortho Podcast. I am your host and quarterback for this episode. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. I'm joined, as always, by my fearless co-hosts. You guys want to go around and introduce yourselves? Yeah, this is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Hey, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital, Colorado. And I am so thrilled to introduce our guests for this uh, for this month. And it is uh, Chuck Goldfarb and Chris D, both of Washington University uh, Orthopedics Department. And I have a little special thing here that I really wanted to do. Um, let me see if this will work. Can, can you guys hear nice. that? Nice. Oh, we can. Oh, oh hey, Chris. And hey, Chuck. <laughs> hey, Chuck. Hey, Craig. All right, good. That's really how I want to introduce you guys today. Um, so uh, if anyone uh, out there does not recognize that intro, that is the beautiful, uh, the jazz intro for the Upper Hand podcast, which uh, Chris and Chuck started, which is part of the reason why we wanted to have you guys on. Uh, we thought that you could commiserate with our uh, podcasting successes and failures and maybe give us some tips. Um, and also, we realized that we have been sadly very negligent of upper extremity topics. And we thought no one better than to bring it to our listeners than, than you guys. So thank you again for joining. Thank you so much. We're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us, Craig. It's nice to see you again. I remember you back when you were a wee lad in our residency program. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I wasn't sure if I was going to bring, if I was going to bring that up or it would make you te- seem too young. And so uh, I was going to ask you guys just to talk a little bit about that, since that's our, our common ground here. Uh, why and how did you end up starting that podcast? I'm actually going to let Chuck tell this one because I divulged the real truth, you know, no fake news on the origin of the podcast on a hand therapy uh, episode. And uh, I want to hear Chuck's version of the story because he probably never even listened to my version. Well, it's, it goes kind of like this. Chris has been struggling to get his name out there. You know, his research has been limited and his clinical productivity is marginal. And so I was just trying to help a brother out and I was trying to, you know, get his name out there. So we thought, what better way to do it than a podcast? Is that right, Chris? That's it. That's exactly how I remember it. You're right. You're right. It's sometimes you got to just hate <laughs> the old man and just let him have his way. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been fun. It's been fun. I think that uh, both Chuck and I uh, recognize that this is how a lot of generations now consume media and it's a way it's a fun way to um, engage our trainees and to engage our colleagues and we've been blown away by the reception you know it's interesting i I don't have to tell you guys it's a labor of love it it is absolutely a labor (laughs) first um but we do have fun with it my wife i've said this on the podcast you know my wife kind of notices the change in my speech and like i i totally enjoy this process but it is yet one other thing um but man it's been fun you know the real reason we did is because chuck needed another title so at the time that we started the podcast he was already executive vice chair uh he was co-chief of the hand service chief of the peed service I, i don't know what else probably you know uh de facto medical director of some brand new venture we haven't even heard of so chuck needed another title and another accolade so it was just a way to help him out i appreciate that intro of him because i was going to struggle to get them all so uh thanks chris so we can skip all that part later um, I noticed, uh, and I, I've listened to your guys' episodes uh, quite a bit as well. 
honestly, to get ideas and kind of hear what I think works and what doesn't, because you get so much in your own silo of what you do and you just keep doing it. Um, I've noticed that you guys have a very engaged audience base. You get regular feedback from, uh, from listeners about what things to do and what to try. And I'm just curious, what do you think it is about your content or delivery or audience that results in a tight-knit community, or at least that's what it seems to be? I don't know if it's any more engaged or less engaged than what you 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 know get with your podcast. Um, if we are engaged, it's simply because hand surgeons are strongly opinionated, and they're not always nice people like pediatric orthopedic surgeons. And, and I think we hear the opinions. I mean, honestly, Chris, I, I think that's what we hear most are strong opinions, and that's great, you know. And it's not always in agreement either. I think one advantage that we have that's kind of baked into our specialty is that we have a broad audience of hand therapists and they have been some of our most engaged listeners. Um, you know, Chuck missed out on the ASHT annual meeting um, in person. Uh, in all seriousness, we recorded a live episode and it was fantastic. And, you know, had people coming up wanting to take selfies, which was kind of weird and shocking, uh, but super fun. And I'm sure if Chuck was there, they would have all flocked to him. But I think that's a, that's a huge advantage for us. I mean, I think um, regularly soliciting uh, listener feedback, um, asking for social media uh, plugs and doing all that certainly helps. Uh, the stuff that we get in our mailbox is fantastic and it's gold. And yeah, some of the segments we try don't work, um, but we try them because we think maybe there's something that some of that has gained traction. We started doing a details surgical technique episode segment because people ask for it and that's what people love. Um, so, you know, Chuck has really taken the lead on doing a listener survey, um, and that's helped us out a lot. Well, give the people what they want, as they always say. I think you guys are definitely doing that. So congratulations on your successes. Um, one of the things that we have found, I think, that our listeners appreciate the most is getting kind of expert opinions. So th I think they like getting up-to-date information about the literature that's out there. And, you know, we are going to review some papers, but... I really think they like hearing it from the mouths of experts, the thing that, you know, treatment algorithms and things like that. And so I actually wanted to uh, take advantage of both of you guys here, and maybe we can start with Chuck. Um, for those who uh, are, uh, aren't familiar with him, uh, Chris already gave most of his titles, but he is the chief of pediatrics at WashU and the co-chief of HAND and the executive vice chair of the department and numerous other things as well, I would assume. Um, and having worked with you when I was a resident, I remember that your practice had a lot of general hand, but your niches were uh, sports, um, seemed like regular finger fractures and elbow and wrist scopes of all the famous athletes around St. Louis, and then also congenital hand, uh, regularly working at the Shriners. I think that actually those two niches are probably outside of what our general listener base wants, wants to hear but they should go over to your podcast if they want to. I wanted to ask you about something that we probably encounter all the time, which would be post-traumatic elbow stiffness. Let's say after a lateral condyle fracture treated with pins or a supracondylar fracture or something maybe more sinister, but I wanna ask about what different uh, algorithms that you would work through in a child uh, who has a stiff elbow in terms of things to try with therapy or dynamic bracing and when you go to surgery and what are all the different aspects you would consider on how to approach that kid? First, thank you for the, the kind words. Um, I would say this, Chris has never allowed me to talk about congenital on the pod, except for one recent episode 
which I think is going to go down as one that didn't work. So we'll see. Um, so the only thing he lets me, he just wants to talk about nerve. That's all he cares about. He thinks the world revolves around nerve, but uh, we do get some sports episodes in. Um, but you're right. I, I look, I have an unbelievably great practice. And for younger listeners out there, my practice evolved based on need, which is kind of remarkable. And so sport, I didn't set out to be a sports surgeon of the upper extremity. It just happened that way. I, I, I've always loved congenital. Um, the elbow to me is super interesting just because I, I, I do believe there are a lot of questions that we can still answer. And ironically, getting to your question about the stiff elbow in the pediatric population, I, I do a lot of the work with Lindley Wall, who's one of my remarkable partners, and she and I combine on really anything pediatric or congenital. And we're, we've just finished and submitted a manuscript looking at kids with stiff elbows because there's very little out there. Um, and there's a couple of interesting things I would share. Number one, many of our children with stiff elbows are young women um, in the 12 to 14 age range, year age range. A lot of them have this co-contraction problem where you ask them to straighten their elbow and they're firing their biceps at the same time. So it's super interesting that things are, signals are getting mixed up. Uh, we think the ulnar nerve is involved in a lot of that. But the, the most, to, again, to get back to your question, the really the most important thing is having a wonderful therapy partner uh, who understands things like co-contractions, who can really counsel the child and the family about how to get through this, control the pain, help them kind of work through the issues, and uh, eventually aggressively uh, treat the patient. Uh, initially with active motion, adding passive motion, adding static progressive splinting and the like. And I think with, with the right hands, uh, good progress can be made, but not always. And, and I'll stop there and see if others, uh, Chris or others have, have something to add. I'm sure you do. On that topic, my question is always one of therapists, like you mentioned, having a therapist that you know, that you trust, that you work with. How does that practically work though? Is it, is just regionally people are willing to, to come and meet with a therapist at your hospital? Is it something, you know, therapists, a few different regions throughout St. Louis that you can kind of plug people in at that therapy place that you really know? How does it just, just regionally work that you can get people into therapists that you know and trust? And Chris and I talk about this on our podcast. We are incredibly fortunate to work with two really good groups of therapists. One group is the Washington University affiliated group called Millican Hand Therapy. And another group is through Athletico, which is a Midwestern, at least, uh, a brand of therapists. Um, and what we ask, and again, Chris, I'd love for you to weigh in. What I ask is that when patients come to see me, that they see therapy that same day. So even if they're two, three, four hours away, they don't have to come back to St. Louis repetitively. Our therapists do tend to know others that can be helpful. But if we, if we level set with visit one um, and then follow up four weeks or six weeks, whenever they might be coming back, I think that's often enough. Now, it's not always enough, as, as, as you know, and it, it can be a negative if someone lives in a rural area, don't have access to good therapy. It can, it can really be a limiting factor. Yeah, like Chuck said, I mean, we've been very fortunate that uh, our one of our mutual mentors, uh, Richard Gelderman, really set the precedent in the clinics for WashU hand surgeons in that there was a therapist in clinic with us, seeing patients with us, not necessarily shadowing, but acting as a uh, part of our team. 
Um, and that has been a tremendous model that, you know, obviously there are um, opportunity cost considerations for the therapy group to send their therapist into a clinic where they're not generating revenue. Uh, but I think it's a long play because they get all of our patients. Um, and, you know, it's beneficial to us because obviously we get their expertise. The patients come across thinking that we are a team because we are. Um, but they also uh, help extend our reach. Um, and I'd advise any of your listeners that are out there and, you know, want to be able to talk with uh, uh, more therapists. Really, that's a way to extend your reach and your reputation um, is honestly spend a lot of time talking to therapists and those that are taking care of your patients, especially early on when, when you don't, uh, when you're not as busy. Yeah. Great insight for starting a practice. Thank you. Chuck, do you ever encounter patients uh, in this age range where uh, really devastating injury or whatever mitigating circumstance there is, uh, despite excellent therapy care, or maybe they weren't able to get therapy, they are left with a stiff elbow. Um, I'm kind of wondering in terms of time frame as to when you start to get worried, if you order other studies to be done, um, and when you would consider a potential release. I know you have some articles on that. Again, I trust our therapist, and, and really it's a sense of when a plateau is reached. I don't think in a kid that's ever before four months. If we feel like we've done all the right things, we feel like the family buys in, because let's face it, if they don't buy in before surgery, then it's not going to go so well after uh, another surgery um, with the therapy. So if those two you know, things are clear, then I, I wouldn't hesitate to consider a surgery because I think you can achieve good outcomes. Um, for me, plain x-rays are important simply to assure that whatever bony reconstruction or repair, I should say, was done didn't alter the bony anatomy to the extent that you wouldn't expect to, to be able to get full range of motion. I don't routinely um, get other studies um, unless I'm worried. I will say mentioning the ulnar nerve again, if I'm worried about the ulnar nerve, then I, a nerve studies could be considered. Although honestly, um, if I'm going to be there and I'm concerned about the ulnar nerve or if the patient is lacking elbow flexion and I'm gonna release the posterior medial collateral ligament any, I do that in every patient who lacks full elbow flexion, I'm probably going to transpose the nerve. Um, and I don't mean that because, I mean, hopefully it doesn't come across that I say that just because I'm a hand surgeon. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's a big part of the pathology. Um, I like arthroscopic releases. I think open releases are great. Um, I think it's kind of dealer's choice. You can get a really great result with either approach. If you, if you were to do an open release, would you do it from medial approach and lateral approach? I, um, I really think the last, if I'm going to do a, um, if it's just the anterior joint. So, you know, if we're worried about lacking extension primarily, and I'm worried about a tight anterior capsule, then I would favor, and I'm going to do this open. I would favor a lateral approach along the lateral supracondylar ridge. It's incredibly safe. You protect the lateral ulnar collateral ligament distally. You protect the radial nerve, which is more proximal as it comes anteriorly. You can really sharply dissect down the bone. You establish the plane between the brachialis and the capsule, and then you excise the capsule. Um, it, 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 you know, with experience, it's very safe. Uh, you can get reasonable visualization, although it's a deep hole. Um, the flip side, of course, is if you are addressing the ulnar nerve as well, then you do have to go medially. I think it's a little harder to do it medially, and so I don't hesitate to go medial and lateral. Rarely do we do the lighthouse approach, you know, the direct post here. It's just not routine in my practice. So I think there's a lot of different ways to do it and be successful. 
And um, what would you do post-op? What have you found that works? You know, blocks, catheters for nerve or for uh, pain management. What seems to work when you do it? Yeah, I'm curious about the experience of this panel, but I would say I really love blocks. Um, in the right patient, an indwelling catheter can be totally reasonable. Um, you know, we have a great uh, PEDS Friday morning indications conference, and it's always interesting to hear the different perspective from my PEDS partners, uh, even regarding time to mobilization. You know, in the adult world, we tend to say, get them moving right away. And if you do, if you do a release within two days, they're in therapy. And I, that's not the right answer necessarily in kids, just because of that sensitivity to pain. And if you go too far too fast, then you kind of get a backlash, so to speak. So I do go a little bit slower. You know, I may, get, I may let them rest for seven to 10 days and then get them moving. Um, so I don't know that any indwelling catheter would be in that long. But if we can minimize the pain around the time of surgery, hopefully we don't lose trust. And then we can get them moving with therapy at that seven to 10 day mark. Perfect. Anyone else have anything to add to that? I would say that I think my experience with elbow releases, Chuck, are related to being in the OR with you. <laughs> I've not found myself doing one. Uh, mean, meaning uh, they got stiff because you were in the OR with Chuck or <laughs> you were no, treating the stiff elbow? <laughs> or, meaning you never wanna, or meaning you never want to see one again because you've been in the OR with me. <laughs> Actually, I think I learned a lot from it. It makes me feel like I could maybe do it if I had the right reason. Chuck, I had a question for you. Is the approach you're talking about um, very different or is it the same as the, the Hotchkiss described over the top? It seems pretty similar. I just didn't know if you had any um, uh, uh, details that were different. Chris likes to name drop. He really wants, you know, he's an HSS guy. I'm just, trying, I'm just to... trying to keep it to the people. <laughs> the people are going to know the over the top. I mean, you know, regardless of who described it. Yes, Bob Hotchkiss at HSS described the over the top approach. So it is, it is a very useful approach going immediately. The problem with going immediately and accessing the elbow joint is you really, well, I should say, I can't really see it unless I do release part of the flexor coordinator mass. So I, I release as little as I can, but as much as I have to, to really get over the top and see the joint. So I think if you are going medially, you do the posterior medial collateral ligament release and then over the top to expose the joint. I think it's a great, great ad. I'll just share a little story and get, get your guys' input on this. I actually had to revise a Terrible situation, but revise a bicolumnar distal humerus T-type, um, really, really large 10-year-old female, you know, and she, and I heard the resident say T-type. I was like, great, we'll throw some pins in, but then turns out she's like larger than me. Um, and so, and, and so we went ahead and did bicolumnar plating and I'm not really sure what happened. She, I think most likely is she fell. Um, and she came back at two weeks and the uh, posterior lateral plate had pulled off. So I'd take her back, revise her, right? And, you know, two weeks in, you know, you're expecting a 10-year-old to have some callus. Um, and I usually move them at two weeks. You know, I was seeing her back at the two-week appointment to get her moving, start her with therapy. And I was shocked at the amount of scarring um, that had already happened behind the tricep. Um, you know, cause you're, I was using a tricep sparing approach. Um, and I was just shocked at how hard it was to mobilize her even completely paralyzed in the operating room, two weeks out, two weeks and three days out. And it just gave me, I think a new appreciation for these patients and how much scar tissue actually builds up that quickly. Um, because it, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, she had, it, we had to really push through, you know, you get that cracking sound like you do with an MUA of that scar tissue breaking and, and had to really release under the triceps to see again. And, um, 
So I'm wondering just on your, not, not necessarily your patients that are coming in stiff, but patients that you do a big uh, open operation on that you want to get moving early. What does early mean to you? Cause early had meant two weeks to me previously, but after doing this case, sort of interested to know when you get people moving. That is super interesting. And that is absolutely the worst time to go back to the OR. You know, the tissues aren't, you know, healthy, the tissue planes aren't there. So I'm glad I wasn't there with you. Um, but I use it with kids. I usually go to the operating room and I'm pleasantly surprised at how much healing there is. You know, for whatever reason, you're back in the OR and you're like, oh my gosh, there's so much healing. Or, or at four weeks, you're going to fix a fracture and you're like, oh my God, there's so much healing. Um, so this is, this is interesting. I don't know that I've been back in the OR um, at that time frame in a situation like this. Um, it, it, the, the, ten, the large 10 year old's a real problem because mentally they're still a 10 year old. And if you try to push them, they're going to not do well. So I, I think I probably would have done, you know, 10 to 14 days. I think I would have done something very similar to you and, and probably had the, the same ultimate outcome because, you know, you try to not get fooled by what their body looks like and remember their age. Yeah, I hope I'm not ever in that position again, because it was not fun for a variety of reasons, but um, it, it ended up okay. And she had a ton of callus. So I'm going to, you know, I, I splinted her for a week and we'll, I'm going to try to move her again now at a week. So three weeks total immobilization, but it's going to be a rough road, I think. And I, I think the, um, for me, the elbow fractures in the kind of obese or advanced skeletal age, 10 to 13 year olds are like the worst case scenario for me. Um, because you have to treat them more like an adult type fracture, but you, they're, as you say, they're kids and they're hard to move. Thank correct, you. Correct. Oh, sure. No, it sounds, uh, it sounds interesting. I bet it, I bet it works out. Um, but it sounds super interesting. Craig will appreciate this analogy. So one of our hand surgery partners is a guy named Marty Boyer. And, uh, Marty has taught me a lot over the years. And one of the things is and we think about the little, you know, joints of the hand, which you guys are so happy you're not regularly thinking about, but, um, you know, the principle in caring for like the PIP joint is get the bones right. You can always do a release and you can always solve a stiff joint. If you don't get the bony reconstruction right or repair right, then you got big problems. So, you know, I certainly support and agree with everything you said and did. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Julia, it sounds like a fresh wound. So, um, <laughs> It is. Yeah. Ask me, ask me in like three months how she's doing. Don't ask me like next week. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I finished that about 10 o'clock on Monday night. So that was really fun. So Chris, we've already uh, made some references to, to your accomplishments. Uh, As you referenced, you were a fellow when I was a resident. I can't remember what level resident uh, on the hand team at WashU. Um, but you have since gone on to, you know, find a niche in brachial plexus and you have an RO1 uh, researching traumatic brachial plexus, or maybe it's more than just traumatic, but that, that's my knowledge of it. And you are the fellowship director of, of the hand fellowship there. So congratulations on those accomplishments and related to your interest in nerve. I wanted to get back to some post-traumatic elbows because that's frankly a lot of what we see. And when we talk about nerve palsies around the elbow, and most of us understand that they're going to uh, come back on their own, uh, given you know three, six, nine months. But I've always wondered when is the right time to actually worry when they don't come back. When do we need to find a nerve partner who can help take care of these patients? Versus when are we wasting your time? 
Uh, well, thanks for having having me on. And um, I know I'm here just to hold Chuck's bags, but uh, you know I appreciate uh, the introduction, and it's really fun to be part of this. So thank you. Um, the I think we're all biased by our training and our skill set. You know, I'm probably less likely to operate on some pediatric fractures because I don't see a lot of kids, and perhaps I may not recognize that fracture that maybe I could make better. Uh, and, and then you kind of find yourself finding rationalizations to treat things in a different way, like non-operatively. So I say that because I think that my bias to this is that I, um, I like nerves and I feel confident in my ability to assess an issue and try to understand the natural history, but I'm still learning and I'm still informing my algorithm. Uh, I think I personally prefer to see people early. And yeah, I think initially when I started, people didn't want to waste my time, but I like seeing those people early because I want to understand uh, them early on so that I can get a sense for the neurologic issue, but mainly get a sense of the patient and in this case, the family. Um, so I don't mind seeing people early. I think it provides, it helps me understand the patient, helps me take care of the patient, also helps my partners. I think it's, it gives, um, you know, my partner is the ability to say that they're, you know, somebody else is, you know, interested in this and, and more than willing to take care of it. Um, so I, I guess in a kid, we, you'd expect a lot of those nerve issues to resolve much more quickly. Um, in an adult, I'd start to worry at six months. If, for example, I got a nerve study and I didn't see any motor units even earlier than that, I'd start to get worried. Um, in adults, we tend to go off kind of this three-month threshold where if you don't see any activity on the EMG, you start to get worried. Uh, kids, I probably will give a little more leeway, and certainly our utilization of EMGs in kids is different. Uh, but if you're not seeing any recovery by the four to six month mark, you should have somebody else involved, mainly to take the pressure off of you um, and to have somebody else make that decision who it may not have been involved in that original fracture care. Um, clearly, we carry our own biases into, um, into those kinds of cases because you really want the patient to do well, um, but you may, um, you, you may look at things differently because you were involved in the original care. I have a comment and a question, if I may. Um, my my comment is getting back to that practice building. I don't think I've you know there's no better example of and I mean this with all sincerity of someone pursuing their passion and succeeding. And Chris has done that with nerve. He came to an institution where there was strength in nerve already, and he was able to build a niche for himself and now has a thriving nerve practice. And he did that. And it goes back to kind of what Craig said, which is you know, don't want to waste our time. I think if you want to build a practice, you have to accept that you're going to see some things that are non-surgical and you're going to help out your partners and the people across town by seeing some patients that they don't want to see anymore. And Chris did that's really, really remarkably well. Um, so again, another pearl. The, um, Chris, the question is, and especially in kids, uh, I know you feel passionately about the use of ultrasound and we're lucky to have good ultrasonographers, but in kids, to me, it seems like it has a particularly important role to play in understanding potential nerve compression, bony, you know, entanglement, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's an area that's going to gain a lot of traction um, pretty soon. And, you know, I, we're learning how to use it better in adults. All of our normal values are based on adults, but clearly, you know, you're fortunate enough in most cases to have a contralateral side to work from. Um, you know, and I've used ultrasound to help localize, you know, neuromas and continuity, for example, like a distal both bone forearm fracture in an adolescent patient, uh, seeing that there was just substantial enlargement, we're talking four times the size of the opposite side really clues you in and says, all right, this may be one that isn't just going to get better on its own. I'd rather look at this and at the very least stimulate it intraoperatively, uh, and see, um, and, and to Chuck's other point, I mean, you know, this may or may not resonate with uh, your listeners or the other panelists, but, you know, I see a lot of patients with thoracic outlet syndrome. 
a lot. And I don't like that personally. I very rarely operate on patients with TOS and my team knows that. Uh, but, you know, for the TOS patient that I get from the person from two or three hours away, they'll send me a brachial plexus patient. And so it's just more of being a resource um, uh, to your colleagues around um, who can send you stuff like Chuck said across town. But, you know, many of us are practicing where you have catchment two or three hours away, if not more. So uh, it's important to kind of see the stuff that you don't necessarily love, but you recognize is related or at least tangential to your practice. Those are uh, great pearls clinically and also uh, related to building a practice. So appreciate you guys' insights on that. Um, I, I'm going to actually move on to our articles, kind of the, the main event, as we like to call it. And uh, what we've selected for tonight is an article where actually uh, you mentioned Lindley Wall already, Dr. Goldfarb, but um, she is a senior author. I know you guys do a lot of this work together. Uh, this article is Congenital Upper Extremity Differences, a Thematic Analysis of Online Discussion Boards. It was in the Journal of Hand Surgery uh, just last year in 2021. And the purpose was to perform a systematic analysis of posts on online discussion boards to identify patient concerns and questions. And I just found this really intriguing because I often wonder what's going through our patients and parents' minds uh, when we uh, give them a diagnosis. And uh, this kind of gives you an insight as to the things that they're talking about. Uh, so for your methods, you analyzed uh, discussion board posts over a 10-year period. There's a very thoughtful thematic analysis that was performed with three rounds of coding and review, and uh, maybe we'll find that uh, interesting to discuss. But um, I did want to mention the results. Uh, there were 420 posts from 152 different threads. The majority of posts, 73%, involved connecting with others. Uh, there was also a decent number of treatment and technical questions that came up where it seems like patients or parents are wanting to confirm the validity of what their surgeon told them. Uh, you also looked at kind of the emotional state of the, uh, of the post and of those that expressed emotion, 26% were overall positive towards the condition, 35% were negative, and 22% were maybe positive and negative experienced both. Um, and there, there's many other statistics about what these are, but uh, I was curious about you and the co-authors and what you found that maybe surprised you. What thing in your results stood out the most to your group? Yeah, well, first of all, I should say that Taylor um, is the first author and she's a remarkable fourth year medical student. So uh, she will be in our world and Lindley uh, led the way. And this is modeled after some of the work Chris has done you know, for me, simplistically, almost all of my research is quantitative in some form or fashion. Um, but qualitative research, trying to get beyond the numbers, and it really has proven to be useful with congenital um, brachial plexus. And certainly, there's a lot of areas in pediatric orthopedics where it would apply and, and should be applied. I thought there was a lot of interesting things that were discovered in this in this research. Um, you know, the, the, one of the impetus, impeti, uh, I'm not sure what you say, but uh, behind the research is we think we know what our patients want to know. We think we know where our patients are coming from, but the reality is I don't know that we're always a good judge of that. And so what patients say to other patients or what, you know, children with a limb deficiency say to other children with limb deficiency is something we just don't know. And so um, what this article got at, one of the things it got at was using, um, patient-rated outcome measures has been the proxy that we have used to assume that it can provide the information that patients want to share with us. But this showed something different, right? It just, it had different information. Um, 
and I, I do think connection, um, maybe more so than ever uh, in our pandemic lives, but connection really does matter. Uh, we try to do that for all of our patients, but we don't succeed at the level that obviously they want us to. Um, it's just a super interesting finding that, that bears mentioning over and over and over again. Um, so there's a lot of things I took away from this, but that was probably the most important for me. Yeah, you mentioned um, the, the use of promise. And I know that, you know, WashU has incorporated that for many years as it's kind of a standard intake element. I know that you have researched that and congenital deformities and other conditions. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about what perspective do you think that this gives that that did not, uh, or sorry, that this gives that the promise or the PROs do not give? What did you additionally learn? I'll answer briefly, but Chris can probably give a more insightful answer. I, I just, you know, I love patient-rated outcome measures and promise has been great for our research program and really for our clinical care program, but it's too simplistic. It's helpful, but it's too simplistic. And, and allowing a patient to put into words what he or she is experiencing uh, is far more valuable, less tangible, but far more valuable. And so that's what's so hard about this research. Um, but I think there's just so much more depth to the information provided that with an effort, um, you can really get more useful information. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. You want to try to balance generalizability with, you know, specificity. So, you know, the qualitative research is fantastic for really understanding in depth one person's experience. Now, that is not necessarily going to translate to a patient on the other side of the country, um, but it's useful. And I think that we shouldn't look at any of the ways of that we assess outcomes as the end all be all. You know, right now, the work that we're doing in our group is really trying to juggle all of these different surgeon graded outcome measures. So for in your world, it might be radiographic or range of motion or things like that with patient report outcome measures like promise and like other scores. And then also looking for us, like looking at how much patients actually use their reconstructed limb. So looking at things like wearable devices and also gate, gate labs and motion tracking and all stuff, we're trying to put it all together and figure out what the right mix is. Now, it's going to look different for plexus than it is for congenital than any other condition. Uh, but it's about just recognizing the strengths of each individual way of approaching things. And then, you know, to take a step back on Chuck's project, um, you know, Taylor and uh, Lindley did a great job at really um, harnessing a, a, an openly available source of information. And one of the things that I, I try to impart to our trainees and our junior partners is that when you're starting out, you don't have your own patients to do research on. Like you need to find a source of patients um, and information to work from. And, you know, when um, Marie Morris and I wrote that paper, gosh, I guess it was like seven or eight years ago now, uh, looking at online discussion boards for brachial plexus patients, that was because I didn't have any patients. I needed something to write about. And I, it, that led to a line of investigation that's led to a grant in terms of trying to understand the shortcomings in how we educate our patients. Um, but it was informed by really knowing what patients are talking about and what patients want to know about. So you know, for, for the younger folks out there that are interested in doing research, try to find ways to, um, to do research with other people's patients. And Chuck's heard me talk about the old OPP principle, but that's it in a nutshell. I, I love the the reference to um, the work that you did with Marie. Um, I was going to ask the differences between what you know this population of congenital uh, deficiencies versus or differences uh, we should say um, versus brachial plexus. Did you see big differences, or was it pretty similar in that patients wanted connection? They worried about technical details. 
they had uh, positive or negative reactions or are any any striking differences between the groups? I mean, I think for for us, the biggest thing that we found was just a lack of general reliable information. Um, there was a lot of trying to you know fact check and cross reference. Um, and then for Plexus, for adult Plexus at least, it was finding somebody who could take care of this. Um, and I think that probably the congenital differences world has something similar. But you know, the United Brachial Plexus Network is a huge resource uh, for any of your birth palsy patients as well as your adult traumatic patients. Um, because it's a, it's a network that they can go to. And we've tried to leverage that in terms of our collaborations with them now. Um, but that was really the biggest thing that we found was misinformation or lack of information and difficulty finding somebody to take care of them. Yeah, and, and you know, all of us are orthopedic surgeons. Uh, Chris and I interact with a lot of plastic surgeons um, in both the brachial plexus world and the congenital world. And I don't think as an orthopedic surgeon, I truly appreciated um, the importance of appearance, uh, the congenital world, it, it really matters. And this, this, you know, this manuscript gets to that to some degree. Um, but we shouldn't underestimate that, whether it's a CP patient, you know, I deal with upper extremity CP. And one of the things the kids I treat hate the most is when they run and their arm comes up to that flexion posture. It's not a major functional issue. It's an appearance issue. And it's a difference issue. And and so we deal with that. And I think, I don't know, Chris, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that that's a piece of the brachial plexus concern, but for congenital anomalies, appearance matters and uh, has to be addressed either by interaction or sometimes surgically. Yeah, I'm working on a project right now with uh, Susan McKinnon, and we're looking at the experience of patients who have had radial nerve palsies. And one of the things that she brought up was that she's had patients with radial nerve palsies concerned about that wrist drop appearance and what that would do to an adolescent, and not that dissimilar from what you just described to the appearance that a patient with, with cerebral palsy may be experiencing. Kind of bringing that background of the prior discussion, that to me, both of those examples sound like something that promise upper extremity scores would not pick up on, but something that they might complain about in the discussion board, um, or not complain about as, as though it's not valid, just you know, lots of other people might also share that opinion. Um, let me kick it back to the co-hosts, Carter, Josh, and Julia. Do you guys have anything else you want to uh, ask our group on these topics? Yeah, um, I'll jump in. I'm super interested in this and, and your guys' experience in this. Um, we're building a limb differences, lower extremity limb differences clinic. Um, and we've we've started off with it being multidisciplinary, which we're really um, lucky to have the support of a in-group psychologist and a, a physical therapist that we all see the patients together, which I think is has addressed a lot of the emotional stuff that comes up. But I'm curious about, you know, I think from a day-to-day -day orthopedic surgeon's perspective, we recognize that these emotional kind of cosmetic, like all these other, what I would group into other stuff that I, that I normally talk about, you know, that's not in my spiel right when i'm talking about something but i understand that i need to address those things and it's easy when you have an hour with somebody um but what would your be recommendations be for people that are are seeing these kids in their clinic for the first time or you know on a routine checkup like how do you think we as orthopedic surgeons without the benefit of a psychologist or an hour and a half to speak to these people how do you build in a rapport with patients and families that conveys that you, you know, recognize those emotional side effects and those concerns in, in a way that doesn't just absolutely blow up your clinic. Cause that's something that I've struggled with 
maybe I'll start and Chris, I'm sure can add to it. Uh, I think it's a really insightful question and it's a challenging issue. Um, and getting, you know, balancing the needs of each family and an efficient clinic sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Um, and I think it has to start, of course, with your having a true appreciation for that need and developing as best as you can as a, a someone without a lower extremity uh, limb difference, you know, as best as you can understand. Uh, for me, it's it's been through, I think I have that, although I'm not claim to be perfect, but it has been years of practice. We have a hand camp where I go spend time with kids in a non-clinic environment, which is remarkable. Um, but I also think you have to be honest. I mean, my, my strongest advice is you have to be honest with families and yeah, maybe I can spend 20 or 30 minutes, maybe in a busy clinic. And then I say, look, I'm so, I apologize. I have to move on. I'll talk to you on the phone. Um, and I'd welcome you to come back and, and uh, build that rapport over time. It's not going to happen on the first visit with a complex deformity. Yeah, I think one thing that um, one of the many things that Chuck has done well in the space is to have the blog um, develop some content and information and address their concerns give them something to work from and just say, look, this is a complex conversation, uh, you know, and start to have it now, but here's some additional information because you're probably not gonna remember a lot of the things that we talk about. And if you yourself have written that or you vetted it and you know it's good, um, that's a, I mean, obviously it takes time to do stuff like that, but I think that that blog has paid dividends for Chuck in terms of some patient referrals, but having a solid resource um, for patients, not only that he um, can direct them to, but others too. Um, and then I think to your other point, you're doing it right. Having the pain, having the psychologist and a physical therapist in clinic with you, that's exactly what we do with our complex nerve clinic is that we, you know, at one point had the pain psychologist in clinic with us doing rounds with us, kind of talking about patients had the, we still have the hand therapist in clinic with us. And it's showing patients that the fact that that person is there, um, automatically gives their issues legitimacy, um, and to show that you're part of a team and then strategically as quickly as you can, either on the front end with your schedulers or with your support uh, team, or you yourself, shunt those patients into that different clinic where you have the more time slots. So our complex nerve clinic, I'm slotted out you know, much differently than I am in my general hand surgery practice where I'm seeing 50 people. Um, and that will give you the space and the time in order to talk to these patients and say, look, you're here in this clinic because I wanna give you more time. And that automatically makes them feel better. Awesome. Thank you. I think that's really great input. And it's a, it's definitely been quite a process. Um, I've got kind of one more follow-up question, if you don't mind. Sorry, Josh. Um, I, I, I'm curious about how you guys handle misinformation. Um, Cause I think one of the things that you guys have shown with your research is that there is some misinformation out there. And I think some um, forums that patients go to, I mean, any patient, right? They Google things and they find things. Um, and, and I think that's a tricky conversation. I think somebody, especially for somebody early in practice. So how do you manage misinformation that people find online and how do you counsel patients away from that, steer them away from that? You know, one, one of the ways is, is exactly what we talked about before, but it's, it's controlling the narrative. Um, and saying, look, I know you're going to go online. Um, you know, that's, that's what everybody does. You here are some resources that I've looked at or that potentially you've authored. Um, and here's what I think is true, but also just saying, look, I know there's a lot of stuff out there. I've looked at it myself and I don't go, I had, I had patients come in talking about paying tens of thousand dollars cash for stem cells for their plexus. And now I get in front of that messaging. Um, and tell them, look, you're going to see stuff on the internet. You're going to get a lot of advertisements. You know, once the algorithm figures out you have a nerve injury, you're going to get a lot of Facebook ads about different supplements, et cetera, that surprise are not covered by your insurance. 
Um, and I think if they know that you are aware of this stuff, they're going to trust you. You're their doctor. But once, if you don't give them information and you don't warn them about this stuff, they're going to wonder why you didn't tell them about that because you're their doctor. That's a great point. Thank you. Yeah, I would say two additional things. One, it helps when you lose hair, if that's ever an opportunity for you. Uh, I get a little more, um, you know, people listen a little more when you're older and there's nothing you can do about that. I love Chris's advice, uh, certainly to get in front of it. Um, and the time invested in, in regularly contributing to a blog, I, I would say, as, as Chris suggested, it is absolutely worth it and um, it's something to think about. Awesome. Thank you. I'll keep working on my gray hairs. They're coming in, but not fast enough. So just quickly, my my mark of a good paper is when I write on the abstract when I'm reading it questions. And then as I get to the discussion, those are like the things that are completely addressed. So my two questions as I read your abstract are number one is how well do PROs capture these things? And can we or should we change our PROs to better capture these opinions and more of the um, less data heavy stuff. And then number two is what role do surgeons play in these chat rooms and in these threads? Um, and again, you address both of those things. So I would I'd just quickly like to hear your opinions on should we be updating our PROs to try and capture these things better or can we? And then number two are, or the number two is what role do you guys play in these chat rooms? You talk about it a little bit in the discussion, but is this something that um, surgeons should be out looking for and, and actively getting engaged in some of these chat rooms? Well, there are unlimited opportunities to get engaged. And when I was first into practice, there was a, a um, I guess, a patient forum on upper extremity issues, which I uh, initially resisted. Then I did sort of get involved with and it. I didn't find it very helpful or rewarding and I actually stopped. And so I engage personally now, I'm not going to sound like a broken record, with my blog. So I write this blog, I get questions regularly. That's my forum. I think though the danger, sometimes as you guys know, Facebook groups and blogs and uh, discussion boards are really dangerous. And the propagation of misinformation, the unusual support of a single surgeon over uh, others can be really distasteful. And so, um, I think it ha you have to do it with the idea that you're providing a public service, not that you're trying to recruit patients. And I think if you do that, it, it helps. Um, I, I won't answer the other question because I want to hear what Chris wants, has to say. Well, to, I mean, to stay on that same question, there is one brachial plexus surgeon that, I mean, I think actively recruits on some of these websites and Facebook pages, um, both for birth palsy and for um, uh, traumatics. And I, I personally don't like that. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it is a bit distasteful, but I recognize that consumer trends are changing and maybe we're, you know, going to be doing the same thing in 10 or 15 years. Uh, but personally, I don't really feel like that's a good use of my time and emotional energy. I'm not going to try to get caught in the, in the comments and the rabbit hole, all, all that. Yeah. Maybe it'll drive you a few patients, but you know, I, I just don't think that that is something that we should be pursuing, but in terms of the information part of it, you know, Chuck's got the blog, um, you know, we've developed uh, what we're, we're working on something called a journey guide um, for patients with a plexus injury that we're working on in collaboration with UBPN, with the United Brachial Plexus Network. And that's been the way that I've found to be acceptable in terms of trying to be a part of the, um, a part of the messaging. 
uh, without steering it too far and kind of keeping it in an altruistic lane. I wish I had the energy that Chuck does to do a blog. I tried it. It's got like three entries and it's crashed and burned. But again, that is one way to do it. And then to answer your first question about updating our PROs, you know, there are, there are um, uh, outcome measures for the things that are some of the concepts that are addressed in, in um, Taylor's uh, article. So, you know, satisfaction with appearance is a scale that's been used um, from an, in the plastics literature. It's been used in the brachial plexus population and certainly could be adapted for whatever uh, pediatric or congenital difference condition you're assessing. Um, so spending a few hours looking at some of those, uh, you know, it's not going, you're not going, you're never going to find one perfect outcome measure, but the beauty of using this qualitative research is to identify the needs, identify the gaps, and then supplement, um, you know, as needed for the, for the population that you're studying. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There are a lot of scales that we as orthopedic surgeons are probably not aware of. Uh, Chris is, you know, very insightful. Uh, Lindley's working with this impact on family scale, which could be, you guys may know about it. I did not until recently, and it certainly could be impactful for any type of uh, pediatric or congenital research. I just want to uh, jump in and first of all, say great article. Thank you for all the explanations. And second, just make a plug, not for myself, but for POSNA. If listeners aren't aware of OrthoKids for all of your non-hand specific needs, um, for those of you that just seem to have 24 hours in a day and not 36 or 40 like Chuck to write a blog and all these other accomplishments, um, there is a pretty phenomenal resource that uh, hopefully is becoming or is maybe established as sort of the go-to place for good, credible information, cutting out all the misinformation on pediatric orthopedic conditions in general. Lots of POSNA members are volunteering their time constantly to sort of build up those blog posts. And I send patients to it all the time and just tell them it's a, it's a good, reliable place to get information on general pediatric orthopedic conditions. It's really helpful in clinic, um, both to help patients and just keep clinic moving, you know. We got to cut the conversation short, but you can go and learn more here. I think it's a great, a great comment. And it's very frustrating to watch our hospitals compete and try to get us to write content for their websites as a way to drive uh, eyeballs to the websites. But uh, these, uh, you know, the OrthoKid site and, and other, you know, Hand Society and AOS have, have some, you know, similar uh, information sources. Those are almost certainly more valuable than any single hospital site. I would just advise, I think it's a great point, Carter. Um, I've, uh, I've been burned a couple of times because I do things a little differently than what's on handcare.org. So just make sure you read it before you send somebody to it, uh, or at least just kind of say that this is in general going to be helpful, but there are a couple of details that may vary from you know what you're seeing on, on the website. Chris D, not by the book anymore. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trained better, but uh, sometimes you got to deviate. <laughs> That was an awesome discussion. I really appreciate uh, everyone's involvement in that. Hopefully our listeners got something out of that. Let's, let's kind of cruise through the lightning round and just uh, get a little bit more sense of upper extremity articles uh, from the last year and get some expert opinion on those. Who wants to start? I'll kick us off. So this is an interesting study um, out of uh, Philadelphia Hand and Shoulder Center, as well as the Shriners Hospital in Philly. Um, looking at long, long thoracic nerve transfers for children with brachial plexus injuries. So this was um, both patients with birth-related injuries, as well as a few blunt trauma patients. 
um, a retrospective review that they looked back at essentially the success and the outcomes and the failures of using the long thoracic nerve transfer in children with brachial plexus injury. So my question to the panel is you have four options to rank in order as to yes, it will work or no, it will not work and we shouldn't use it. So using it for a donor nerve for muscucutaneous, using it a donor nerve for axillary nerve reinnervation, using it for donor nerve for posterior or other radial nerve, or using it as for a uh, free tissue transfer for obturator nerve for the gracilis. So of those four, which ones will it work and which ones won't it work? I'll, I'll go first. Because then when I get it wrong, Crystal, Crystal swoop in with the right answer. I think the free functioning gracilis is, is uh, you know, probably the best answer. I, I'm not sure how well it will be used for uh, the other nerves, but I, I would assume it has a, a applicability for uh, musculocutaneous in particular. Those would be my top two. I think the answer is all the above because it's peds. Um, so probably everything would work. I had not used a, I had not thought about it in the context of, you know, a free function in gracilis, although I think that would be reasonable. I would hope that you can, um, I don't know if that's being used as a donor nerve, as a neurotizer, or whether it's used as a graft. Um, but, uh, I think I agree with Chuck that long thoracic, uh, to restore elbow flexion makes a lot of sense. I haven't thought about long thoracic to PIN, but I mean, you know, the radial nerve is comprised basically of every nerve root anyway, and long thoracic is getting five, six, and seven. So that seems to make sense too. Um, and honestly, I just can't remember the other options you described. Sure. So interesting. Again, this is this is their, their study over 10 years, um, a small patient population, but what they found and what they recommend is very successful for um, obturator nerve for gracilis transfers. They had um, good outcomes with it in all of their cases, got good, good strength, over 75% successful um, outcomes with that. They also had good outcomes with uh, musculocutaneous nerve and axillary nerve. Um, what they found is that in their cases, the four cases they did for either PIN or radial nerve branch, the triceps, they uh, failed in all four. So none of the four transfers for PIN radial nerve stuff worked. And so their algorithm was at least great for obturator, reasonable for musculocutaneous and axillary, but the radial nerve, you know, for a lot of reasons, that radial nerve seems to be a little more resilient. Now, is that plugging into the obturator so that's power of the gracilis for elbow flexion? Yeah. So that's a, a free it. gracilis okay. transfer that they then plug into the obturator. Got it. So interesting study. Um, not something I know anything about, but it was fun to review my anatomy and relearn some of that stuff. And second question, going to some trauma, which we talked a little bit about early. So this is interesting. Um, Peter Waters came to Iowa when I was a resident a few years ago as one of our guest lecturers. And one of the things that really stood out to me was his recommendation that Montasia fractures be treated much like, you know, type three supercondylars and that they get admitted that night for planned surgery in the next day. Um, that certainly wasn't how we did it at Iowa at the time. And it again, stood out for me from probably 2014 or 2015 when he was there. And then I went to Rady and, and they've published, um, they've published on that algorithm. Um, Dr. Ring and Dr. Waters have a publication from several years ago and then went to Rady where Rady is also published on the opposite of that, where they treated a lot of them non-operatively and found that 76, 77% of kids, even with length unstable ulnar fractures, 
went on to um, heal and have a stable elbow. So the second study is similarly a review from most of the group in uh, LA. So it's a combined group of a, a group of patients from UCLA and um, CHLA, as well as Dr. Arcator's patients from, um, from CHOP. And so combined the two groups and looked retrospectively at the outcomes that they had in treating patients with or without surgery with length unstable ulna fracture. So this is only looking at the unstable length unstable ulna fracture. So which which side of the bandwagon do you guys fall? Do you agree with uh, the Dr. Waters and Ring publication that says treating them all operatively to avoid the potential pitfalls of loss of reduction and the complications that occur? Or do you agree more with the Rady treatment of you can treat a lot of these non-operatively and save a lot of kids from surgery. Either way, you're making some enemies, guys. So let's hear it. I do not believe these patients need to be admitted and treated the next day. I just don't. Uh, however, um, it's that fine line between, you know, I would, I would try to achieve a reduction in the emergency department and I would probably see them back in five to seven days and likely at that point make a decision and not push it out to two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, meaning that if I was uncertain uh, about stability or if it looked somewhat worse in five to seven days, I would plan on going to the operating room. Um, I just think that's fair to the family. It sounds like this, it, based on your description, it sounds like they, they could do fine with the length unstable uh, ulna, but it, it worries me. And I don't want to be treating that fracture with callus at three weeks. I think that all of a sudden becomes a lot more challenging potentially. I, I agree with Chuck's algorithm. I don't, uh, I don't see these a lot anymore, but I think just in terms of counseling, um, I think that what, uh, what we can provide as uh, physicians and surgeons is a sense of kind of a risk calculation and, you know, how, um, if, uh, if it's length unstable, perhaps things could really go downhill relatively quickly. And I think that if they, we have certain things in our control, like getting a, a good solid reduction in the ER and close monitoring, um, I, I think that's something that we should uh, share with the family. Yeah, so you guys are right on par with what they presented in their data and what they recommended, which was a total of 150 patients that really what they focused on was the 75-ish patients who had length unstable ulnas. And what they found is similar to the, the data from Rady, which was that 13% of patients lost reduction. So 80 plus percent of patients who were reduced, even with length unstable fractures, maintained that reduction. Their algorithm was to see them at one week post-reduction and actually see them for four consecutive weeks. They didn't say when the loss of reduction happened, but I suspect it was always within that first week. And so certainly seeing them back in a week and transitioning to operative management, as soon as you see a loss of reduction, um, they had good outcomes. Interestingly, they had no loss of reduction in type one and type two. So anterior and posterior dislocations were all stable. The five loss of reductions that they saw were in the type three and the type four. So they cautioned that maybe pay a little extra attention to those ones, make sure you see them back in a week and then take them to the OR for treatment. And one important thing that they showed is that even the patients who did lose reduction, who then went to the OR for treatment, long-term outcomes were the same as the patients who were treated with surgery primarily. So you're not losing anything and not putting these kids on a, a course of poor recovery if you don't treat them surgically straight away. I'm sure you guys all experienced this. You know, Chris and I follow radius fractures weekly. Um, the danger there, whether that's a pediatric radius or a, a little old lady radius, is if the patient, say, has 10 degrees of dorsal tilt 
and you see them a week, you know, in the ER, and then at one week they have 13 degrees of dorsal tilt, and then it's 17 degrees of dorsal tilt. It's that slippery slope of when do you intervene? But I, I like the algorithm; it makes some sense. But you got to be willing to pull the trigger and not change your criteria. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear the the co-host too. I and what I tell my residents, my experience has been is they go one way or the other. When you're talking about the radiocapitellar joint, it seems to either fall into better alignment and better reduction, or it dislocates more at that first week. I really haven't seen the gradual, slow, slow, slow process. It seems like they go one way or the other. I would agree with you, Josh. But then regarding distal radiuses, I totally do what Chuck is saying. And uh, that is uh, an amazing description and uh, observation right there. You got, you got to ask yourself, does it pass the resident sniff test? So, you know, if a resident's going to be like, ooh, we're treating that not up, probably should have uh, changed course a little bit ago. They just want to fix all the bones, Chris. Let's be honest. <laughs> also true. All right, who's next? All right, I can go next. I've, that's a good, uh, good segue. So I've got an article, JBGS, uh, last year from the Paley Institute, and it is about radial head subluxation and dislocation in patients with multiple hereditary exostoses. So basically the authors tried to figure out, is there a way you can predict which ones of these patients with osteochondromas in their forearm are going to go into, uh, go on to dislocation of the radial head. And maybe you should either keep a close eye on them or even better intervene before that happens. Um, so I guess before I sort of give the whole explanation, um, Chris and Chuck, are there certain things, if you see a patient with MHE that sort of set off alarms for you, if you're following their forearm, make you think that they might be uh, going on to problems? Uh, yeah. If I see MHE on my clinic schedule, that's the <laughs> alarm. And I immediately say, you know what? Take your copay back. Go see Dr. Goldfarb. <laughs> I, I, Aaron Hooser was a fellow uh, here in St. Louis. He's a great guy. Uh, I know the article. The challenge with this population is there's been a lot of articles about this, but the alarm bell for me is really around distal ulna link. And I think that's not a new finding. Um, and so a short distal ulna theoretically tethered by a distal ulna osteochondroma is what, is what worries me. The concept of the curvature of the ulna has been, doesn't resonate quite as much, not to steal the thunder of the article's findings, but doesn't resonate as much. The length of the ulna resonates and has been demonstrated previously. Uh, well, that um, obviously mostly jibes with this article and was a uh, good spoiler slash segue. So basically the authors found that the things that you should worry about uh, is just like Chuck said, when the ulna is short and specifically measured it relative to the radius and it was uh, proportional, the shorter it gets, the worse your risk is. And then also um, the worse the ulnar bow gets. The radial bow also gets worse with uh, MHE, but didn't seem to be related. Um, and then the other thing they looked at was, does it matter much if you just have osteochondromas of the distal ulnar or not? And that actually wasn't really related either the thing to look for is the ulnar bow and the, uh, especially the shortening. Chuck, I wanted to ask you uh, regarding this. Do you think that if you can identify early the patients at risk for subluxation dislocation, obviously you'd love to prevent that. Do you think that prophylactic measures overall change that natural history? What, what has been your approach with that? So two approaches um, that I think are truly helpful Terry Light in Chicago popularized the idea of doing a detethering 
um, with the idea being that if the shortened distal ulna tethers the radius, you get curvature of the radius and dislocation of the radial head. And so simply cutting the soft tissues around the distal ulna is one proposed solution, which is distasteful to most of us, uh, but can be effective. Length in the ulna, I do believe works, but you know, again, it's tricky. How, how many, when do you lengthen it? You know, when, when is the horse left the barn, so to speak? So those are just tricky concepts and, and aren't clear, but I think you can intervene. It's why during growth spurts, I tend to follow these kids every six months. Perfect. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll finish it off. I'll start with uh, Jacob Schultz paper at all um, from Vanderbilt. And I don't know if you guys, uh, Chuck and Chris, read the article, um, because if you did, it kind of gave it away. But I, I guess the, the question, hopefully you didn't read the title, is does bruising pattern predict neurovascular injury in supracondylar humerus fractures? So there's been some evidence that just having a bruise is obviously more in, in, um, indicative of the level of soft tissue injury. You know, this has been a very severe soft tissue injury, very severe fracture. Um, but I, this was kind of an interesting article in the sense of, you know, where the bruise is, does that predict where the nerve injury is going to be? So what do you guys think? Yes or no? Yes. I didn't read the article. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I can't, I can add a little more than Chris's yes, but not that much more. I, I would say I tend to be the one to go to the OR when there's a disvascular extremity. And in all of those cases, there is a bruise anteriorly. And that's really all I can say. I, I don't know about, I don't know about other nerve, if it gets to other nerve pathology, but when there is a dysvascular extremity, there's always a bruise anteriorly. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was taught too. And I think the interesting thing about what, what they found, they, they did find yes, actually, that the bruising pattern predicts the nerve injury. So shocker. Um, yeah, exactly. So they characterized their bruising patterns as either anterior anterolateral, anteromedial, or posterior. And um, all vas just like you said, Chuck, um, all vascular injuries, all bruising was anteromedial or anterior. Um, so in the, in the patients with vascular injuries, with bruises, they were all anterior, anteromedial. Um, and fractures that had anteromedial bruising correlated with median nerve injury in 89%. Um, and fractures with anterolateral bruising correlated with radial nerve injuries. So I think it's, it, it is, and, and it makes sense, right? It's one of those things that you're like, this, this does make sense. I think you have to be a little careful with these um, findings just because um, they looked at all the patients with neurovascular injuries. Um, so obviously you, not all patients with neurovascular injuries will have bruising and not all patients with bruising will have a neurovascular injury. So you have to be a little bit careful there. Um, but I think in combination, and what this paper describes is in combination with a radiographic evaluation, if you've looked at enough of these fractures, you know what most likely the nerve injury is going to be. And then if you, if you see that that is what it looks like on x-ray and you see that they have a bruise, I think having a higher suspicion for that neurovascular injury, particularly in the patients that are real young and hard to, hard to evaluate or examine, you just want to have a higher suspicion. So I think it's an interesting article, kind of something to add. Um, add a little potpourri for pimping the residents too. So I always like those. Um, I was going to have some smart reply, some quippiness about, well, why don't you just examine a patient? But then I forgot in your age groups, you can't always examine the patient. So I guess, <laughs> I guess there's value here. Yes. No, that is a very fair point though, which is, you know, yeah, if you can just examine the patient, you wouldn't have to look at the bruising pattern, but you know, the screaming three-year-olds sometimes throw you off. So 
But that and, is and a fair point. If you have the new intern uh, in July examining the patient, uh, you can just ask them to send you a picture of the elbow. <laughs> exactly. Picture of the x-ray, picture of the elbow. Good to go. <laughs> you, guys, you guys have to make them at least describe the bruise. They, they, you know, a lot of a lot of our trainees struggle with describing x-rays and wounds. At least make them describe the bruise. Come on. <laughs> All right. So the second one um, is, is an interesting paper from Todd Lawrence uh, from CHOP. Um, and so question in, in a family that comes in with a distal radius buckle fracture, nothing crazy, super low, low risk injury. Um, do families make cost conscious choices when given cost information during the decision making process of whether to have a distal radius fracture, buckle fracture, let's clarify, treated in a cast or a removable splint. So do you guys think if you give the family the cost information, do they pick the lower cost? choice. So, so in other words, do they pick the, the removable brace? Yeah. I think my families have no, there is no connection between cost and treatment because that's the foul, that's the screwed up nature of our healthcare system. I mean, I think our healthcare system is so broken and this, this, so my guess is they don't care what it costs. Mine all want to cast. So <laughs> it's not really a debate. Mine all want to cast. What do you think, Chris? I agree. But it depends on how the discussion. So I'm assuming they had the kind of the, these are, they're going to have the same clinical outcome here. The, you know, the cast costs X and the brace costs half X. Is that a yeah, they actually, summary of what they did? They did it pretty, um, I think in a very smart way because so they, it was uh, randomized to families that got the cost information before they made the decision, right? So that was part of the decision-making process versus a scripted, conversation so the all the surgeons had the same conversation with the family equal um outcome you know downsides of cast or you have to come back it's you know you can't get it wet um and it's it's more costly and then there was a group of people that didn't get the cost information same conversation and then after they'd picked they actually showed them the cost information and gave them the opportunity to change their mind uh, so they did it in a really good way i think that's that's slick and a lot more effort than probably the question deserved. But <laughs> maybe I, I'm, not, I'm not hating on a study, but I, I agree with Chuck. I think that uh, they're gonna they're gonna be uh, uh, they're not gonna care as much about cost, unfortunately. Yeah. So you guys are exactly right. So it turns out 50% of the patients picked the more expensive option, no matter whether they knew about the cost or didn't know about the cost. So it literally didn't matter. Um, and when their families were asked, you know, what are the influential factors in your decision-making process? Only 9% said that cost even played a role. Um, and interestingly, there was one family that changed their decision after receiving the cost information, and they actually switched from splint to cast. <laughs> so they I, went the I opposite that, way. <laughs> I, th I think that what they didn't measure is the, the powerful force field of parental guilt and decisional regret should things go the wrong way. Parental guilt is a, a substantial force. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the points they brought up are perceived value. So because a cast is more expensive, do they perceive that it is somehow better, even if you've said it's not? Um, and then, you know, the other thing is all these patients were insured. And so I think a lot of people assume that they won't see that cost difference or that won't actually matter to them. And again, to your point, Chuck, that's that's a down downfall of our healthcare system. So um, thanks, guys. That was kind of an interesting one. And perhaps they see the craftsmanship that the junior resident is putting into that uh, unmolded cast. 
yes the cylinder cast yeah it's like when you're shopping for a nice steak at the grocery store and they look the same but one's more expensive you just you just got to know you got to try that one right <laughs> probably the same right. thing that's a, that's how chuck fixes wine <laughs> not, not really shots fired um that's all we have for tonight guys thank you that was super enjoyable and informative uh, i loved it chuck and chris it was such a pleasure to have you guys i do want to again give a plug uh, to the listeners and maybe i should let you guys give a plug but the upper hand podcast find it anywhere you can get your your favorite podcast and twitter handles gentlemen please share at congenital hand for me and I'm at Chris D M D and that's spelled D Y. Uh, you know, you can check us out. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. Uh, just even just download a few episodes and click five stars and just pretend you listened. <laughs> totally cool. Uh, and you'll impress your hand attendings. If you tell them that you, you are uh, learning from Chuck Goldfarb, they'll forget about me, but you'll, you learn from Chuck. They'll know that. They'll know that name. I love, love uh, you guys are doing a great job. This is a, you guys have really built something here and, uh, I just want to say congrats and we're, we're, it's really our pleasure to, to join you for this episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having us on guys. Thanks Thank for you joining guys. us. This was great. Yeah, this was awesome. Really appreciate Good. your time guys. Appreciate it. Good seeing everyone again. Have a great night. Chuck, hopefully we didn't keep you up too long. And Julia, I hope you keep all your hair and let's go with the just turning gray option as opposed to <laughs> what he had recommended. Perfect. I'm sure my family would appreciate that also. <laughs> <laughs>